Hello and welcome to the British Society of Gastroenterology Trainees podcast. My name's James Kennedy and I'm a gastroenterology trainee in the Thames Valley. Today's guest is Dr Catherine Edwards. Catherine is a consultant gastroenterologist at Torbay and South Devon NHS Trust. Catherine was BSG president from 2018 to 2020 and prior to that was the society's first female secretary. She began her career reading modern history at Oxford before heading to Newcastle to study medicine. She then returned to Oxford to train in gastroenterology and carry out a DPhil as an MRC fellow looking at diversion colitis. Her clinical interests lie in luminal gastroenterology, particularly inflammatory bowel disease, and she has just been appointed associate editor for BMJ Open Gastroenterology. So, welcome to the podcast, Catherine. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, and to kick off, congratulations on quite a roller coaster of a time as BSG president over the past two years. Um, you handed over the reins to Alistair McKinley in June this year. Um, can you just talk to us a bit about the highs and lows of the past two years? Oh, thanks, James. It's a real pleasure to be chatting to you again. And uh, yes, you, you're right. There were certainly some real challenges uh, within my two-year presidency. And looking back, I guess they were there right at the beginning. Uh, it wasn't just the COVID challenge. That was sort of the icing on the cake, I suppose. But I think for any membership organisation which is in transition and facing a period of change, which after 82 years in existence, inevitably uh, you're going to be seeing uh, in an organisation like the BSG, the major challenge was membership engagement, because without your members, the society is nothing. And so for me, right at the beginning of that two-year period, I was very acutely aware that we had both change that needed to be affected internally within the organisation in order to meet the membership engagement challenge, and also in our external interface uh, as the authoritative voice of gastroenterology and hepatology in the UK. So some of the approach to that was premeditated, uh, premeditated, but some was forced upon me by circumstance. And indeed, for the first six to nine months of my presidency, um, we were in transition between chief uh, executive officers. So the presidency took on uh, a slightly more executive feel than it would normally have. So those challenges effectively become your highlights. You can't have one without the other, really, I don't think. And I think the what started out as a necessary program of change internally in terms of governance, finance, uh, the staffing of the office, and a real IT revolution for the BSG, uh, came to be some of the highlights and successes then that allowed us to internally take on the challenge of delivering ongoing membership engagement and membership service uh, during the COVID pandemic. Um, and separately, I think the external interface uh, during that time, again, supported by those internal changes that we were able to, to make, meant that we had a more engaged voice with partners, uh, 
partner membership organisations such as the RCP, again, which stood us in very good stead, working collaboratively during the pandemic, and also with patient organisations. And I think I'd probably highlight there groups like Crohn's and Colitis UK, and again, during the pandemic, to be able to work uh, at a national level with Crohn's and Colitis UK to support the registry, uh, developing the web tool, which allowed a direct patient engagement with the society, with government, uh, in terms of uh, estimating people's level of risk. So that was one of the real successes for me, to be able to really use that external engagement in an incredibly positive, patient-orientated way uh, during the last six months of my term. And uh, putting those two things together, I think what started as the big challenges and the roller coaster you referred to actually ended up kickstarting a period of change and transition that has uh, evidenced a better engagement of our members and it was I was really delighted to see that in the recent elections uh, for council for sections we had 14 people stand for council election I think that's our all-time record in the BSG history so I think good things came out of some challenging times. That's a fantastic way of, of looking at it isn't it Catherine that you know, for a time that's brought so many challenges so many difficulties for many people it's, it's great to see that, that the organisation came out stronger in many ways because of it. Um, now, if we start to rewind the clock and um, look look a bit more at, at your career in focus, if we okay, go back to the start of your story, so you had a, a slightly unusual path into medicine, um, some might say, so having started life doing a history degree, um, are you okay to tell us a bit about your inspiration to becoming a doctor and your path to medicine? Yes, it, it was an odd, it was an odd journey into medicine, um, and not one I expected, Um but I think you're right in highlighting the inspiration part of it because there are always things that happen to us in our lives or people that we meet that really flick a switch sometimes. So when I was 16, as part of some very uh, routine for uh, school uh, community service work, uh, we had to find a local organisation in which we could volunteer as part of our sixth form years. And so I started to volunteer uh, at our local hospice, uh, my local hospice in Sheffield, where I grew up. And um, it became very apparent very quickly that this was something that really affected me quite profoundly. It, it changed the way I thought about things. It changed the way I thought about myself. And uh, before I knew it, I was acting as what they described then as a nursing volunteer. It was a very interesting role. It meant that you got early training with a experienced, fully qualified RCN, and that you were allowed to effectively perform the role of what we now call a healthcare assistant or nursing auxiliary uh, in the context of an inpatient uh, palliative care unit. And as a result of that volunteering and the people I met there, the patients I met there, I become, became to think of, in terms of career, in terms of a caring, the caring professions, which of course, by necessity, would be science-based. And of course, although I was a bit of an all-rounder at school, my natural inclination 
was to do uh, the things that within my comfort zone. And I had a sort of relatively natural ability for music, for arts, uh, and for languages. Um, I really enjoyed uh, languages, I think because they're part of uh, one's ability to communicate with lots of different people. Uh, so I, I did uh, French, German, uh, I did a little bit of Russian at school, uh, I did history uh, A-level, uh, and I was effectively a, a musician, if that's what I did in my spare time. I, I played the piano, I, I had, my voice was classically trained, believe it or not, I, I used to sing soprano uh, in various uh, sort of performance sort of situations. And uh, I also played the violin very badly. Uh, and I did a bit of conducting of the, the youth orchestra. So I was very heavily into uh, sort of the non, a non-science world uh, until I started to go to the library in the hospice and uh, read lots of oncology books and lots of books about uh, bereavement and dying and the importance of those last journeys and the interactions that come out of them. Wow, that that is that's quite an inspiration. That's so that then led you to switch tack, kind of after after you studied history. Was that right? Yes, that's right. I I, I think looking back, it's it's interesting to to try and understand why, having had that experience at you know between sixteen and eighteen, you then persist in your uh, wish to go and read arts. Uh, and I think it's because it's partly to do with comfort zone. It's partly because I had a place at Oxford to read history. Uh, and of course, uh, the first term at Oxford in history, you have to offer two languages. So it all seemed pretty perfect for me. I was going to be able to use all the things I liked all at once. Uh, and that's very, very tempting. And I think at 18, that would have been incredibly difficult to turn down to have said, no, thank you. Thank you, but no, thank you. I'm going to go and do medicine. But I think I probably did have it in my mind at that point that maybe uh, I would do medicine afterwards. And as I progressed through my uh, terms at Oxford, I made a sort of final decision at the end of my second year that I would start preparing myself for to move straight on and do medicine as a second degree. Um, which was a bit of a long haul uh, and there were times in it that I thought have I made the right decision here it's simply the sort of nine years mm, at university became quite a quite, quite a challenge psychologically uh, but I, I don't regret it at all. Brilliant and I, I, some of the best doctors I know that I've met along um, my kind of, you know, very short journey so far are people who've done medicine as a second degree or who've come from a a healthcare background, you know, maybe as a nurse or a healthcare assistant before becoming a doctor. Um, how much do you think that that prior experience is is important, is necessary to in, in terms of becoming a, a good clinician? So uh, I think that's a really good question, um, James. I, For me, I know that the experiences I had dealing with bereaved relatives, talking to patients who were dying, uh, learning how to make a patient comfortable in their bed or just to make them feel comfortable in conversation with you, learning to use silence to not be scared of the more difficult conversations that we need to have with patients, 
All of that, I feel, I learnt in those early days in the hospice. And I am forever grateful for the skill of the people I worked with and their generosity in teaching me. Far from trying to keep me out, I was welcomed very much as part of the team and the training was well, it was light touch, but it was well thought out. It addressed my insecurities and my concerns and it allowed me to function at the best possible level I could, even though I was at a very, very junior uh, stage of my career. And I've brought that with me through my career and I still think about things that I were said to me then uh, even now when I'm, I'm talking to patients uh, in clinic, whether that's in the context of bad news or whether it's the context of a chronic uh, chronic disease clinic or acutely, uh, you know, on the medical take. Um, I think it's hard to uh, exclude the possibility in your career that a lot of the skills you need in medicine, or rather it's, it's hard to deny that a lot of the skills we use in medicine aren't pertinent to medicine per se, they're life skills, uh, they're skills that you need to develop as part of your experiential learning of both life uh, and, and maybe a, a little bit of uh, sort of self-discovery and self-understanding so that we know where our strengths and weaknesses come, but that we're not afraid to use uh, and play to our strengths in the way that we approach our career choices. And I, I guess that's what I've most learned. It's really important to understand your motivations and your skill set in order to both continue to learn, lifelong learning, but also to know perhaps where you, you may be happiest and most settled in your career. I think that's a, I think that's a really great point. And you, met, you touched on there a, um, a few of your, your loves outside of medicine, um, uh, you know, fact that you're you're a, a polyglot and um, playing piano and, and violin how much of that have you managed to to keep up alongside your busy schedule at the moment uh i knew you were going to ask ask me that so um uh i guess i've been very bad and um, it's really hard I, to maintain a level of practice that would keep you uh, able to to perform at, at any level amateur uh amateur level so i last sung uh, in public in 2006, which gives you an idea of how little practice I've done since, uh, and I certainly won't be—I uh, won't be returning to uh, public uh, public singing. Uh, I keep my singing to myself these days. Uh, in terms of the piano, I, until very recently, I've always had a piano at home. Uh, I'm just without one at the moment, and I do intend to go back to some uh, some playing for fun. I haven't touched the violin for absolute years uh, it was never my favorite instrument I guess um, the greatest thing about the orchestra was that I got to conduct it and maybe that says something about me but I I love the fun of everybody else's parts and bringing everybody else together in, in to make a cohesive sound so it was the conducting I most enjoyed about my orchestral days but I haven't done any of that either for a long time Okay, so you're not going to be setting up any Zoom choirs within the BFP? Uh, no, no, I, I think I would definitely take a back row, back row seat in that. Uh, what I have done instead is, is I, I, I've tried to expand uh, and keep my sort of creative sort of self going by, by continuing to learn 
new languages. Uh, I'm trying to keep up with my French and German, but that's always difficult uh, to find uh, conversational opportunities. But I am learning Afrikaans at the moment. Um, so uh, that's been a very nice creative uh, outlet for me. And I'm very interested in interiors design and garden design. So that's what I do as my hobby these days. Excellent. And is that Afrikaans that born out of your, your experience in Cape Town in in 2015? Yes, it is. Yeah, the the, the conversation, uh, shall we say, the endoscopy room conversations amongst the nursing staff were all in Afrikaans. So I, uh, when I was there, I decided that one way of, of becoming part of the team and showing willing was to try and join in a bit of that conversation. Um, I'm very famous for saying something very funny in Afrikaans uh, in my very early appearance in the endoscopy suite, uh, when my Afrikaans wasn't very good at all. And, and to be honest, it's not until recently that I've taken it more seriously and tried to become at least conversational. But it was a very good icebreaker. I think when you're visiting uh, as a visiting lecturer in somebody else's department and you're seen very much as someone that's coming to do a training role for them, it's very hard just to walk in on day one and start unpicking the uh, interpersonal dynamics of that endoscopy unit. Uh, and getting straight in there with a training offering without understanding uh, how that unit ticks. So uh, having a little bit of Afrikaans, having a little bit of banter uh, with the staff uh, was a really good starting point for me because they could all laugh at my Afrikaans. (laughs) (laughs) And so again, if we turn back the clock a little bit, what, what attracted you to pursuing a career in gastroenterology, would you say? So again, it I always, I always sort of thought of myself uh, as a palliative care physician or possibly a medical oncologist. That was the intent when I started to retrain because, you again, you start with your comfort zone. You, you start with what you've has led you into medicine. But gastroenterology, I, it, it all comes back to role models and being inspired and also having fun. And I had a lot of fun being the uh, F2, or as it was then SHO, on on the gastro unit uh, in Oxford. I really enjoyed the combination of skills that I learned there. We were given a lot of responsibility for running the ward, uh, and we had a, a really good insight into the two sides of the specialty, both the hepatitis, uh, hepatology and the luminal work and I suddenly became quite attracted to the fact that I would have a craft specialty I'd have an additional skill beyond my clinical communication diagnostic and academic skills I'd actually have a physical skill a trade if you like and that some became quite important to me over time although it wasn't the the motivator that made me choose it in the end, I think in the end it was working with the IBD population group. Uh, Oxford was very strong in IBD. My then mentor, my academic mentor, uh, Professor Derek Jewell, who was head of department, uh, was an IBD, you know, world-renowned IBD specialist. And I really admired the way in which he combined uh, a hugely successful academic career in his in his case with 
a sort of clinician scientist role and that combination of taking best science and best evidence and and applying it for the benefit of patients in, in terms of the clinic so I had great fun as part of that team and because of that when a number became available it was a very easy decision to uh, apply for the job. Sounds like it and um, another thing that you're really passionate about is uh, is mentorship and that's come through your time with the BSG. Um, who would you single out you know, either during that you know, your formative years as as a doctor, early career years, or, or more latterly, as a as a mentor who's most inspired you? That's a really difficult question because I've been very fortunate in my uh, personal and professional life to have had informal mentors whom I probably didn't recognise as mentors uh, at the time. Uh, such was the informality. I've also been fortunate that at times more latterly when I've Uh, approached a transition point in my career I have used professional coaches and mentors to support that transition period and again there's I think there's a real the message here for me is that it's the transition points that are most important in one's career and that's very applicable to the trainee group you transition from medical student into early professional years and then from generalist training into specialist training and then from training into early consultancy and so it goes on so there are always these key transition points and and that's where I think mentorship and coaching can be most helpful for me if I were to pick a single person who has given me inspiration. It, it was actually um, a very somebody I met when I was working at the John Radcliffe as a junior doctor. She was an incredible woman. She wasn't a doctor. She was someone who single-handedly set up the bereavement counselling service at the John Radcliffe Hospital and headed up the bereavement service there uh, in the end, uh, at the end of her career. She was a uh, an inspirational woman and still alive and I and we're still friends which is even more wonderful uh, although she's quite frail and not in terribly good health uh, now but she taught me the value of listening and the value that true empathy brings to the professional con- consultation and uh, she still remains uh, somebody I most look up to in terms of that particular skill, which I think is key to having a rewarding and successful career in in medicine, let alone in gastroenterology itself. Brilliant. And you've tried to pass on that, your understanding of the importance of mentorship with um, SWIG, haven't you, with the Supporting Women in Gastroenterology programme? Yeah. Yeah, so the original network supporting women in gastroenterology which was a network for men and women I must must stress came from a slightly different uh, inspiration viewpoint it was a really a very open questioning of why gastroenterology appeared to be lagging behind in the in the gender gap shall we say and uh, historically always quite a surgical specialty our female uh, numbers were very much more akin to surgery, specialist surgery uh, and interventionalist specialties than it was to the numbers of women who 
A, were going to medical school, or B, were uh, in specialties such as radiology, palliative care, and general medicine itself. And I felt that that just deserved an airing, uh, just a questioning about why that was the case. So, in fact, this started more as a general survey of the trainee cohorts, asking them uh, what they thought about the specialty, what they had, what had attracted them into the specialty. And we published that survey, I think, a few years ago now. But some of the, the, the responses that came out from both men and women in that survey was the value of having a role model, the value of having a mentor early on in your career. So in fact, it was the other way around. It was, it was me looking to the trainees to, for inspiration and, and, and trying to find out from them what mattered now in those training years because you know we all think we form an opinion about what matters but it's important that you actually ask the question so that's how that started and we did trial it as part of the network because we we also knew that women particularly find it difficult to access mentorship so we had a perfect opportunity to pilot in the uh, in female mentees using male and female mentors but the mentee group was exclusively female in the pilot with the intention that if we could demonstrate benefit in that group we would then roll out to the the wider society which we did in 2018 uh, and I think it's been a very good process for the BSG uh, because it it recognized the importance of this these transition phases it recognized that uh, it's across your career this idea of having a some form of formal support in career development was incredibly important for us all, no matter our seniority. And I would identify, in fact, people in the later phase of their career now as, as people who need that support to transition into either full retirement or to the retire and return category, because that can be a very difficult transition for, for people as well. And and you touched on the you know the gender gap within gastroenterology there, and I mean it's only five six years ago that it was still thirty nine percent of gastroenterology trainees were, were female. Is that have you personally felt um, felt that's been something that it, we're on the way to overcoming? So I would have to say that 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 the sort of gender difference can work both ways. I mean, in many ways, if you are perceived as being unusual, that can work in your favor uh, and I don't and I, and I don't I wouldn't actively seek that and I don't believe in positive discrimination um, I, I think gender balance is about is a workforce issue for me if you work in a specialty where you can't draw from the full pool of talent uh, then your your workforce is going to be in crisis and as a leader you don't want your workforce to be in crisis. You want to be able to draw from the widest and most diverse mm. pool. So in terms of my personal uh, career, I have never felt disadvantaged, although I have felt that I'm an unusual. Um, and, and people have said that, oh, well, you're one of very few women doing this. So it tends to make you feel <laughs> unusual even if that doesn't make you feel disadvantaged. Uh, I've had 
I, I have difficulty with this concept that you should be appointed to anything because you work in a district general hospital or because you live in the north of England or because you're a woman or because you did a history degree before you did med you know this is not how I see recruitment working I think you have to look at people's skill set and make your decision based on that and to and to get the richest and fullest combination of skills which make a good team, you need to draw from the richest and widest and most diverse pool. So for me, that it's a slightly different question, I think. I, I, I get uncomfortable when we start saying we need to ring fence, uh, ring fence uh, positions. Uh, and I have actually been very against that uh, in my as my time as, as president but that is my personal view i think the way you do that is you change the culture you make the society and you make our specialty accessible you make it transparent and you make it very clear that diversity and is welcomed and that we are an inclusive group and that's about cultural change so that's a that's a huge challenge of the of the role the implications of what you do during your tenure may have fall out you know five ten years down the line yeah. in terms of workforce planning it it, it, it is and I, and I think we have to be very mindful uh, of uh, the of perverse outcomes any any changes you make within an organization you've got to try and forecast perversity as a result of that change and it's one of the hardest things uh, when you're as a group trying to shape uh, a membership group or any group uh, for the future to try and avoid the exact perverse outcome you were trying to avoid in the first place. So um, it's also part of the fun though and, and, the, and the key to uh, inclusivity is to ask the question, is to establish those groups, is to get feedback. I think it's organisations that don't listen to feedback and don't uh, embrace some of the changes that are necessary as a result of that feedback that, that run into difficulties. Uh, and uh, certainly when, uh, one, of the, one of the most fun things that I was able to do as president is I set up with council's permission, fully discussed through the appropriate channels, a, a transition advisory group, which is to identify um, a, sm a small group of trainees and early years consultants who could actually have a focused input into strategic questions for the society um, without actually holding any uh, councillor or, or major section role. And they, they basically acted as a focus group so we could discuss in confidence ideas about how membership engagement might be improved. And they were a fantastic group to work with. Uh, and I was really grateful to all of them uh, for taking part. And we had some very, very interesting discussions about how you create a, a strategy which is innovative for a membership organisation that's been around for over 80 years. And um, what, what would you say has been your proudest achievement to date? Oh, this is another difficult question. Um, so I think we think of our the things we do in our lives, probably we separate the personal uh, and the professional. I, I think in, in both personal and professional, what's given me the most satisfaction is seeing things uh, come full cycle. Uh, 
And it's hard not to cite the BSG as one of the most important cycles of my professional life, um, starting as, as secretary and the fantastic experience and the enjoyment I got out of that role, uh, and then culminating in, in presidency. But I think I'm going to set that to one side. Uh, and and I, I think maybe um, at, a, at a personal level and professional level, the work that I did as chairman as, of the board of my local hospice uh, down here in South Devon gave me an opportunity to, to get that cycle completed from those very, very early days uh, back in Sheffield. So uh, I joined uh, as a trustee, a member of the trustee board of my local hospice, uh, and then quite quickly was asked if I would chair the board during a period of, of great change. So it's a bit of theme coming out here again, lots of change. Uh, and I A, thoroughly enjoyed it, but B, there was a real sense of, um, as if I was completing that loop, that, that is almost like completing the audit cycles. And you've, you've, mm -hmm. you've tasted the, the world of palliative care from one angle. You've tried to incorporate the, the really wonderful lessons that I learned you know, in the hospice, in your clinical practice. And now you were able to bring that to bear in the context of organizational change, governance reform, and supporting uh, the whole organization, both clinical and administrative. So I, I guess my time as chair of the board uh, here down in South Devon at my hospice has, has been one of the most uh, important and, and gratifying cycles recently. And to, to leave off, um, if you had to pass on one piece of advice for an early career gastroenterology trainee or someone considering applying to the specialty, um, what would it be? I'm very wary of advice. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> um, I think the best sort of advice comes through an ability to have an ongoing conversation with somebody who understands and can allow you to grow and make your decisions well. But I do think there are, something I said I think early on around understanding your skill set as an individual, both your strengths and your weaknesses, and understanding your motivators are really key to good decision-making in your career. And so, if I had to sum it that understanding up uh, in a process, I would probably say, make sure you understand both. But when you come to make that final decision, should I, which subspecialty shall I do, which specialty, which hospital, try and ensure that you make your decision with your heart as well as understand it with your head. It'll always keep you motivated in your career. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for coming today. It's been a real pleasure, James. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you for listening to the British Society of Gastroenterology Trainees podcast. Please do listen to our other episodes available at www.bsg.org.uk forward slash trainee podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes and Pocket Casts. And don't forget to give us a rating and leave a review wherever you listen.